break up all of the things you want to serve, all of the things that should serve your business, the things that are going to serve you in the short term, the long term, and really strategize that and then map all of the content that you have at your disposal just to fit into each one of those things you've identified. Welcome to Escaping the Ordinary Podcast. If you are ready to be the best version of yourself and level up your life, stay tuned as we interview special guests who will bring you all of the latest and greatest tips, skills, and know-how to make you the best that you can be. We know that you have it in you, and we are going to show you how with your host, Ryan T. All right, so I want to welcome a great friend of mine, someone that's inspired me a lot in my career as a photographer. And just jumping on Ollie Sampson's website, I see the heading, Ollie plays with cameras, pencils and words and talks about creativity worldwide. But don't listen to his third person bollocks. His friends have to say, probably a late bloomer, not as smooth, smooth as his jawline would leave you to believe. He's a great kind of eccentric. I can't understand a fucking word he says and probably only has condiments in his fridge. So I've got Ollie here with me. Mate, who are you? Tell us. I'm someone that going on those reviews is about to fucking nosedive any subscribers that you had on this podcast <laughs> into oblivion. Hey, it's just me <laughs> listening, mate. Yeah, I'll still be here. Don't worry, Ollie. Mate, you and I, we can come to the world. So, Ollie, I mean, you've got a few different names, aliases. When I think about Ollie, I think every time, bro, I think about the Dark Knight. That's just what comes to my mind. <laughs> this guy that's just kind of like, you seem to go against the grain and you seem to follow your path as a creative. I mean, when you kind of jumped on my radar, I was just, I feel left field in the industry and someone that I can aspire to be and try and find my voice. So, Ollie. Samson is your real name. I know you've got another brand. I don't even know how to pronounce it. How do you pronounce it? It's Briars, like the, the thorny flower type vibe. But um, yeah, it's, that's been a really interesting exercise in how not to brand yourself. Like make sure it's pronounceable and all that sort of stuff first. But it's also a good reminder that it doesn't fucking matter what name you've got. It. The bigger thing about a brand is everything that kind of comes after it. So I'm relishing in having a really freaking annoying name. <laughs> By the way, mate, thanks for having us. Like, you're kicking ass. So it's such a, a thrill to be here chatting about all this stuff. Oh, I'm so grateful to have you on. Seriously. So how did you come up with Bryas? How did you come up with Bryas Atlas? When I was rebranding, the, the main thing I wanted to do was basically take myself out of the equation, take my name out of it because I was getting more of an interest in going back and, and having some kind of fine art practice or getting back into teaching, that type of thing. So I wanted to have the wedding side of things, something removed from my name, basically, and that was the main purpose for that. And when I was going through that process, I was like, how do I want this to feel? And I kept being kind of turned towards, you know, the whole Tarantino movie cinematic type vibe, but not necessarily from a point of moodiness, more from a point of this beautiful, characterful type of feeling. And I wanted to imagine a name that would just appear as a almost like a punk band t-shirt or a Tarantino film or something. So it doesn't necessarily mean anything when you read it, but it kind of has that ambiguity to it and Rise Atlas came out of that somehow. So Ollie Sampson initially 
that would hold all your wedding work and stuff like that. Was it also a thing to separate your personal work from your wedding work or looking at long jeopardy, like scalability and stuff like that with removing your actual physical name? Completely. And most people that I talk to in the wedding game, uh, similar to myself in that it's this kind of runaway train that, you know, before you've had the chance to turn around and look at it, it's grabbed you and you've just, you've retrofitted, you put a brand together, you've used your own name, you've just kind of flung it together and then you get, you know, a few years and you're like, hang on, holy shit, at no point did I sit here and do a business plan, at no point did I sit here and look at the idea of scalability or longevity or any of those things that every other industry does. So for me, that was that kind of moment of going, hang on, I've worked in ad agencies, I've worked in branding, I've worked in design, but I haven't used any of those skills that I spent 10 years kind of fostering. And it was a real put the brakes on moment and go, hang on, what is this little beast? need to look like how should it serve me and how can it be something that is its own thing rather than attached to me so if you reverse time do you kind of wish that you had started with separating yourself from the brand like i mean obviously using your name in your business as a photographer and a a sole trader is kind of pretty common i mean i know you've got a lot of years in the industry so do you wish you kind of started and was like okay cool i'm going to look and long jeopardy and scale so i'm going to remove myself straight away so yeah looking at all your multiple brands i know someone that you know may not know of yourself might get a little bit like kind of unsure of where do we go leading towards a path of what we're looking for you know what i mean i totally would and here's the thing with brands what makes a strong brand the name doesn't matter for me for my case 100 i would have removed myself from the word go and I would have been more calculated and slow in how I was doing things instead of being reactionary and just kind of jumping from thing to thing quickly without thinking about it strategically in context. But I don't think there's any merit either way in either having your name on it or a different name. It's totally case by case. For me, I would have. But, you know, a brand isn't in the name. A brand is in the work you produce and the volume at which you produce it and the eyeballs that it's hitting. And they're all really separate things to what you decide to call it. I could call my brand uh, Giant Flying Light Bulb, literally. That's pretty and cool. <laughs> meaning would be made of that name through the things I put out. You know, there's a photographer called an architect something, my underpants. She's a commercial photographer in Victoria, I think. And brilliant. The most long, weird, strange name ever. But it doesn't matter. Her work's fantastic. And she's made a meaning of the name. Yeah, I think uh, we all overthink the name at the start, right? We think it has so much to do with success and stuff like that. I mean, what is Apple, right? Like something so simple has been around. They just totally changed the concept of what Apple means. And it's a fruit that's been around for, you know, a long time. So (laughs) what is Ollie Sampson then? So is that your personal work now at the moment? I don't really know. Like I'm in this position where I'm trying to look look at less things and take stock of the things I enjoy doing and, and find that out. You know, like 12 months ago, I, I pretty much ripped off six years of work on my Instagram because, you know, there's that thing of if you've got all these buckets of things you've made, you're constantly anchored to that. It's the same thing as if you would have suddenly set your house on fire. Mentally, you're no longer tied to the identity created by that space that you had and the things that you owned. And it might seem really esoteric, but... I don't think it is. Like, there's something really 
tangible for me in just removing all of the work I had online and going, all of this was made without strategy, without thinking, what bodies of work do I want to make? What's the type of work that I want to align myself with? So I took everything off in an effort to kind of start answering that question. I haven't yet, but I do know I'm starting to lean more towards the work that I like looking at and thinking, okay, what work do I want to produce? What do I want to use this little following that I've got to see and leverage? So, yeah. So you've curated your Instagram feed. Do you think that came or can come with time? Like as we start, we get so ecstatic with work that we create. And then I know myself that over time, Ollie, that you look back at that work and you obviously decipher it and take things from it. And and generally it's a lot of like progression forward. So for like a photographer listening, that's like, okay, cool. Curate, like curate my work, remove so much. Well, like I said, you've got years in this industry. Do you think that's only come from time, from building your knowledge base of what you actually want to do now? And do you think it, that's why you got to the point now to do that? For me, it was kind of a case of putting the brakes on and going, hang on, I'm in this extraordinarily lucky position to be in something vaguely qualifying as the arts industry. So it's kind of silly to not put the hands on the steering wheel and go and really grab the bull by the horns. And I hadn't done that for eight years since leaving my job in a design agency and I think it's really too good of an opportunity to waste so it's just yeah for me it was a case of going okay use this window you've got where you know you're passionate you're invested you still feel like you're brand new to it and that'd be the first thing I'd tell anyone's sole trader like give yourself a week away from the hamster wheel and, and look at the work you're doing and look at stuff you're falling in love with and go what do I want my business and output to look like? And how, how am I letting the state of the industry influence that for, for better or worse? And do I need to remove myself from that? And, you know, to kind of roll it back a little bit into the separating myself from the brand, what that also enabled me to do was to do all of these other business things like champion other vendors and collaborators. So, you know, on my in inverted things, Ollie Sansom account, I wouldn't want to post floristry or styling or anything overtly weddings because I want that to be a base for a highly curated type of output. But now on my wedding one, I go nuts with hashtags. I'm insufferable with it. I, <laughs> I don't give a shit. Like I'm using the platform in the way it's intended, using hashtags. I'm, I'm sharing all of this beautiful work from the surrounding community in weddings where that wouldn't necessarily fit in inverted commas, fine art output. So, Ollie, when you started the second brand, I mean, obviously it probably had no traction to start with, right? And what did you do? Did you take the photos that you really liked from your personal account, which was then your current business for wedding couples, and then take it over there? Did you see like a loss of traction with bookings because people were maybe going to the wrong place or when they go to Ollie Samson, it's kind of curated to more personal work and they don't see the wedding stuff. And then what about your website? I know I'm on your websites at the moment and they're just incredible. Like your branding is just next. I mean, it, it speaks what you want to speak really. I think like if we can stay on Instagram for a while, because I know people get a little bit worried about making a new brand or starting a new business or changing their name and that whole loss of traction. Like, did you get that effect and how did you generate? Like, I know you've already got this kind of fan base already on your second brand. 
oh, total loss of traction. But, you know, the reason we do this is to let go of our ego and, and attachment to things that we think are working and to just just give it a crack. Like there was tons of loss of traction. I started the account with zero. I've still got a really tiny amount by standards, by engagement rate, though, when I post uh, affinity posts, which is to say posts that are, have a certain level of effort and finesse put into them and I've put effort into the carousels, they're ones that I know are going to go well, for example. The comparative engagement rate I have in this account is really, really high and that's, that's been a strategic thing. The numbers really don't matter. And the other thing I've got to remember is when you take your ego out of it and kind of look at this from the view that people aren't following me you know, some are, okay, some are following me for a while before they get married, but, you know, this isn't an industry where people shouldn't necessarily give a shit about the work I'm doing until they get engaged. So the people I should be making this for and building this brand for, people that don't yet exist within my market, I don't need to create work for an existing follower base. I need to make work for couples that have just gotten engaged, they've just been presented with a question of, holy shit, I need, I need a photographer. What the hell is that? How do I hire that? And I need to put content out there that serves them. So in that way, seeing that loss of traction as a positive thing was the the best thing I could have done because it lets you start fresh and go, how do I best serve my future market? So Ollie, if I can just keep going on this. So with the second brand, do you feel as though it's now more content, as you mentioned, content for that engaged couple where you've kind of removed yourself and your ego from it? Because I know your work is so unique and defined and niche as well. I mean, remember when seeing your work years ago and I was like, wow, like that is next level because I've never seen anything like it. And obviously that then niches you down in the industry. Obviously, you know, not talking about financials, the couples that want Ollie Sampson to photograph their wedding, they're going to have you. But now with the second brand, are you kind of doing this as also like a financial position because it's opening the market up to a little bit more where you've kind of removed your yourself from it to a certain point and you've kept Ollie as that real, that real niche, that real kind of creative arts and fine art like you mentioned. So did it kind of veer down that path? Sorry, which path are you? I'm trying to just digest all of it. Yeah. So with the second brand, yep. you seem to have removed yourself from it. And in order doing that, you're saying you're that you're posting for like engaged couples and stuff like that. So do you feel as though that you're posting stuff that you definitely wouldn't have prior on Ollie because it's more of the business hat as well? rather than just that that creative hat that's really niching your style down. So you're thinking, I'm going to open this up to more of a kind of broader field that are interested in. 100%. On my old account, which you know got me to whatever nominal number of followers it did, it was really reactionary and there was no strategy wrapped around it. And to have you say what you're saying to me is quite extraordinary because not to underplay the work I've done, but... Now I'm wrapping so much more strategy around it and it is a complete, I don't want to say completely financial thing, but it's completely a sustainability thing going, okay, if I've got another five or six, seven, eight, nine years in this game, which I still currently adore to death and feel like I've just entered, how do I make these good years? Because the market now is so much more different to what it was five or six years ago. Five or six years ago, Photographers would get one or two features on a wedding blog and book out 30 or 40 weddings. It was completely different. 
And now there's such incredible, brilliant talent out there that are so hungry and young and they can launch brands fast. Couples don't give a shit about what I think is important. They, they just don't. And it's about putting that servitude hat on. I still get brilliant creative couples that take me to all sorts of weird and wonderful places. But I also have to surf the local market. So I've got an Evernote doc and in that doc, I've got a whole bunch of strategic stuff in there. So everything I put on Instagram now, like this is only, I'm only 10 or 15% into what I'm going to be doing. But everything has strategy wrapped around it. So I'm talking about how do I hit this venue? How do I hit these collaborators? How do I serve them? How do I give? How do I make the content I put so much love into useful to a wider range of people and there's a lot of background strategy I've, I've put into that so Instagram for me used to be I guess an art outlet on my Ollie account and now for the wedding stuff it's it's purely utilitarian like Instagram's a volume ecosystem it's about putting work that's good or useful in front of eyeballs as often as possible and as strategically as possible and that's how I treat it now so, Ollie, where was the point in time where you made that conscious decision of starting that second brand? What was the defining factor? Were you over your kind of, I don't know, your Instagram kind of turnover or whatever you're producing? Like, where was it when you just went? Because I, I, I'm sure there was a point when you're like, I'm done. Yeah, probably around the time my business crashed and burnt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That'd be, that's a good answer to that. When was the time you decided to turn things around? <laughs> oh, when I was nearly ran out of business. I spent a lot of time not putting a whole lot of effort into the business end of things and letting a whole bunch of other kind of problems and things get in the way of taking it really seriously. And, you know, that led to serving people, not as well as it could have been, and it led to me not serving the business at all. So that was a moment of going, hang on, this, this thing needs to operate uh, properly. It needs to operate in a lean way. And it made me, you know, it kind of led to this brilliant moment where I looked back at other jobs I'd worked in. So I'd worked in design and advertising agencies. I had this creative capital behind me. E-learning, like learning about how we learn and consume information, which has now led to how I'm delivering educational content. And I'd worked in factories where they had all of these processes around lean production and concepts like not double handling, project management systems like Kanban, which started in the automotive industry, and kind of going, holy shit, I've, I've been involved and immersed in all of these other types of industry. Why don't I just apply it to my own? And that kind of started turning everything around. It sounds like, Ollie, at the moment when you're explaining it, it sounds really refreshing. Like... It sounds like you've got a new lease of life. You've been divorced and now you're remarried and you're really happy <laughs> because you have these kind of things that are now serving financially, I would say, and long jeopardy. I mean, we all think about, I think, the longer you're in the industry, like scalability or what's going to happen in the future rather than like you said initially on this interview is like that impulse, like that, boom, I'm going to post this and that because I love it and that's great and you still produce work, I'm sure, that you love, but you've removed the ego from it and you've also started thinking like a business owner, right? Uh, and from that failure, yeah. now you've like, you know, you've kind of reinvented yourself to two different people or two identities, hey? Completely. And I feel like particularly this industry doesn't like talking about this stuff in this way, but the way I really feel about this is 
if I've let myself get behind and not put the effort in, then I don't deserve to be in this. You've got to fight for stuff that you want. I don't get a free ride. So if I want this, I've got to fight for it, which means getting strategic about it, not living by this kind of really bullshit narratives that go around about just do what you love, do what makes you happy, like all of this fluff stuff that is, isn't useful and I don't think is even true or a good narrative to hold. And a big part of this for me was deconstructing a bunch of narratives that I kind of was leaning on. And for a really long time, one of those narratives was that it's a tough game, it's in the arts, it's struggle, it's blah, blah, blah. And it doesn't need to be that way. And the strange thing I've noticed is that I've been getting DMs from people saying, man, you're so busy, you're doing so much stuff, blah, blah, blah. And look, I've got to preface this by saying I'm a little bit behind on my social scheduling at the moment, like my content frequency's dropped, but I was putting out on an average week about 10 times more content than I'd ever done with a fraction of the effort, purely because I was looking at what I'd seen in other industries about pre-preparing content, doing a marketing content plan, all that stuff, once a month, once every two months. And I was able to put out there so much more content that served a whole bunch of different people and got my work in front of eyeballs with a fraction of the effort. And it was just through being strategic and doing what every other industry does. And so, Ollie, so you're saying scheduling posts and stuff like that, but I think the underlying thing you're saying here as well, just if I can kind of recap, is you've removed yourself from when you post. Like, I know that whole the thing that we constantly like criticize our own work and do I post this? Do I, does this show what I want to do? And am I on a mountain or am I in a waterfall? And am I creating this crazy concept? And it's like, so if I recap and just go back through this, you're thinking about the client realistically when you're posting and you're scheduling to that. Is that the make sense? Is that kind of like where you're at? Yeah. So I've, I've got a bunch of things that I know I want to serve with my work. And if you look into the idea of evergreen content, like if you've, if you've been photographing five years, you've got five years worth of stuff on your hard drives and five years of content and images, so many other people's work. And when you look at that on scale and piece that together, you might have five years worth of images of the Melbourne florist scene, for one example. That's a pretty powerful body of work from a utilitarian perspective. I love it. So yeah, what I'm talking about is, you know, the way you post, the scheduling in mind, and how you do it, you're saying you're getting 10 times more traffic. Right. Yeah. And then also removing yourself from those posts and worrying about, you know, is it serving your creative outlet? Totally. Exactly that. And there's two things I would also add to that. One is, you know, if we remove our art ego from it and just remember that most people looking at our feeds, say most, not all, but most, they're not scrolling past the first nine or 12 posts. So if you're posting frequently, right, the stuff you're kind of ooing and ahhing about, it gets to serve its purpose for whatever that is. For example, if you're tagging yourself into the flow of floristry or whatever that might be, you get to serve that functional purpose and then you can push that down and then put your art stuff up or whatever else you feel good posting about. It's always going to be a mix of utilitarian and serving yourself from an art perspective, but I think it should lean more towards the former. It's a utilitarian platform. People aren't agonizing over our stuff to the extent that, that we are. I mean, looking at your work, Ollie, you've still got yourself in it. So if 
anyone listening, they think Ollie's just started the second brand that's just generic and and just like every on every street corner. It's definitely not. You're still definitely putting an aspect of yourself in this business, right? You haven't fully just kind of gone with the the middle line. You can still see that there is a niche involved and there is a fine art approach to what you do. And I believe looking at any of your brands, there's, there's an approach that's just you. There's separation between yourself and so many others, which is a great thing. Hey, Ollie, like I want to talk about your creativity though, because that's where you came on my radar. And I think that's a lot of photographers that know of yourself, Ollie, are going, you know, they, they know who Ollie is, right? Like you think of the dark night, <laughs> you watch Joker and you're like, yeah, is that, is that Ollie stepping in? Is he, is he there somewhere on that train? I'm so glad <laughs> I wore my leather spandex <laughs> just for you then. So your creativity Creativity is obviously a subjective manner. And I want to talk to you about it because looking at your work from the outside, it's got its own niche. And I want to ask a question. Do you feel as though that you've kind of had this all along or was there a defining factor whether you where you were making that generic organic work like everyone else and then it was like another turning point as you've just kind of like generated now this work that it's like that is Ollie. You see it, you know it. You know what I mean? So I want to know if it was it was a time thing where you started finding your your style, if we want to call it, or it was something you reckon you've had all along or photographers have in them or they don't have in them. I feel like the work that we make, whatever it is, is is really only the product of everything we've ever seen and immersed ourselves in. For me, you know, I grew up drawing like, like a maniac and I, I wish I still had the attention span that I used to have where I could sit there drawing in my room for five hours straight. But, you know, my background was MC Escher, painters like Jeffrey Smart, who I fell in love with at the age of 12 or 13, Edward Hopper, all that sort of thing. That was my kind of creative vocabulary as a teenager. And when I was drawing, I would kind of try and channel those things. I would watch The Simpsons, I would freeze a frame, and I would sit there trying to draw that frame. I've got a sketchbook full of that, where I try and turn these cartoons into 3D highly 3D shaded sketches, you know, that's kind of what I spent, I guess, a decade doing from, you know, the age of six or seven through until when I quit drawing at the age of 16. But that that time spent immersing in those buckets of artists is what then kind of I drew on when I started taking photos. And to kind of make it tangible, when I would make an image and get into dodging and burning it. The things I was effectively trying to do was create this tonal variation that I used to see in an illustrator like MC Escher. And if you look at MC Escher's work and then try and channel that in a black and white image, something really magic happens where you kind of find more in that raw file, I guess. And that's the sort of stuff I look for. You know, even across to Jeffrey Smart, who I talk about all the time, by immersing in just one or two painters, and if you're in high school and you've got an art teacher and they're having build your vocabulary of an art form is what your teacher is showing you at that point. And my teacher showed me Jeffrey Smart, and to me, he was the pinnacle of, of painting for such a long time. And the effect that has now on how I see people as a design element in a frame, like it, it's changed everything. A wedding is 90% documentary stuff, you know, off-the-cuff documentary photojournalism. You can't put yourself into, you know, that much of a wedding day necessarily. But it means here and there I'll kind of look for those Jeffrey Smart moments and it's 
it's incredible how direct correlation falling in love with one particular artist can make on a different art form. Does that kind of answer that question? Yeah, 100%, Ollie. And I mean, coming from a creative and a photographer's perspective, say there's a photographer out there listening and they're kind of, yeah, they're, they're a little unhappy with the work they're making and they obviously like seeing people's work on Instagram and stuff can be a killer because you start like comparing and stuff. But for that person that wants to really find their voice and stuff like that, like you sound like you were really brought up with the backbone of what it was or what it is to find your voice or create a lot of people obviously don't have that background and maybe are producing work that they're not too proud about. So do you suggest to them go find an artist that they love and like just dive into that artist rather than, you know, going and buying 20 photo books and 20 of this and, and being bombarded for people that want to engage more into their finding their voice and stuff. So what would be your biggest tip to people like that? It's really hard to give advice that when you know it's harder to act on now in the current climate, you know, like I remember when the internet hadn't come out yet and you just didn't have the option of that amount of excess landing on your lap with such frequency. And it, it was easier to have two or three books in the house where the weight of them on your soul was so heavy because of the scarcity that they were the only things there. And the effect that has on you immersing on them proactively is, is really, really unique. So, you know, I would say, yes, unfollow everyone, shut down your feeds, all that stuff and immerse in a couple of artists. But I'm also present with the fact it's really hard advice to act on now. So maybe I just give that advice and say, but, you know, I'm also coming at it from the advantage of, of now having those artists on my head for the last 15, 20 years. Look, with, with that said, maybe it's the case of going and analysing what these platforms are doing to us now from a subconscious point of view. And if you think about how back in the day, the only way that a person could access you as a person was to call your home phone, you know, have your mum pass the phone to you or turn up at your doorstep. That was all there was. Now we've got this thing in our pocket where a hundred times a day, if you would add them up, it'd probably be around a hundred times a day. Once you add up someone engaging with your content, sending you a message on WhatsApp, Facebook, Instagram, whatever. What I try and do is look at each one of those interactions as someone turning up on my doorstep. So if someone turns up on your doorstep to say hello, hand you something, have a conversation, that's five or 10 minutes of your brain capital that's been taken from that day. And now we've got this thing in our pocket where we're letting that happen so many times every single day. And what that does is that erodes our ability to concentrate and focus on something and it erodes our ability to really immerse in something deep. And, you know, I haven't read this book, so it's ironic that I'm going to now pump it, but there's a guy called Cal Newport and he's got a book called Deep Work. And just reading the blurb of that book, I think maybe that's something that's worth folks reading. You know, the biggest gift you can give yourself as creative now is kind of what we've had now, which is isolation and solace. And these platforms aren't developed with our mental health in mind. They've got psychologists on board <laughs> that are employed to do the, the exact opposite. So if we can strategically insert at scale moments of calm and quiet in our week, 
that's naturally going to lead to the advice that I would give, which is just to immerse in a couple of hours deeply and try and cherry pick something from them. And do you feel as though, I know myself personally, I've bought many photo books before and didn't understand them, didn't know where the narrative was, didn't understand the, the art form behind the photograph that I'm looking at. There's still some today that I just don't understand. And I, I mean, I was speaking to Cy Moore this morning about Stephen Shaw's work and, you know, and I was thinking about his mind and when he was creating this work and I'm like, was he thinking of long jeopardy? Was he thinking of people in 2020 looking at my work? Because I'm sure you're familiar with his work. There's bacon and eggs on a plate and stuff like that. So you've got this kind of establishment as like a creative by drawing and, and stuff like this, is it at a young age as a photographer starting out, right? We know that time develops skills, but I want to know with your left field approach and your unique photography that you create, did you feel as though that because you had that establishment as like a creative and drawing and all that, when you first got into the game, that you kind of brought that straight into it, you know, like you were editing photos in a different way and you were not so cliche because you're definitely not a cliche photographer, right? When you first started in the industry, did you have the creativity that you have today? Probably more, um, much more so. Like I, when I put up a, an IGTV post today, there was a, there's a frame I caught in there where I had my old website up and I looked at it and I'm like, oh shit, I want to make stuff like that. <laughs> And then I remembered that um, this is a commercial enterprise and I can't be just looking through everything through my own lens, you know. With that said, I think I was a little bit more, I guess, me, but something I realised along the way too was this idea of, you know, without getting into the highly nuanced gender correlation between the idea of masculine and feminine, but just the idea itself of masculine and feminine lenses and masculinity and femininity in an image and how the work I put up right at the start actually compromised my business from growing because it was super egotistical and it was super through this um, masculine lens that I had. It was sort of this dark, moody, brutalist stuff. And, you know, if you've just got engaged, you're super stoked on life and you're just looking for someone to document it, the reality is you kind of got to get turned off by that stuff. So I would say I'm kind of taking more of myself out of it and finding a place where finding that happy number, that happy percentage of me that can be in that work. Because, you know, there's a lot of people out there in jobs that don't get to have any of themselves in their work. So to have 15 or 20%, I think is a massive privilege, really. So, Ollie, when you photograph now, someone books through your second brand, they see your second brand. Are you still photographing like Ollie was? Are you still creating how you were or more or less are you toning it back a little bit from more of a financial perspective? I've toned it back a little bit, but I still try and throw in little like sprinkles of it for sure. I think as a photographer and as a documentarian, my skills are way stronger now without doubt. How I edit, it's more a case of I'm editing, I think, less distinctly. I'm editing more from a point of view of, okay, this needs to look great in 50 years. It should look overtly of an era. So, Ollie, you said your skills are way stronger now. Now, do you mean like from the course of when you started or do you mean now that you have the second brand? 
Both, really, because the idea of consolidating this new brand where you kind of take stock of all the work you've done, it makes you kind of shoot for that brand in some ways, So, which I think has made me also a stronger photographer. I wouldn't say my eye is any stronger now. You know, I think that's something you get from looking at different types of art. You know, I haven't gained a stronger eye. I have gained a lot more knowledge of my camera and I use it really, really intensely. I use aperture. I use shutter speed. I use all of these things really intensely now and I can solve, I'm a better problem solver with a camera for sure. I think when you pair that up and, and just try and really hold on to a certain way of seeing the world, I think that can be a pretty powerful combination. So do you feel as though when you're photographing now, it is a lot more documentary approach? I mean, I'm trying to paint a picture in my mind now when you're saying that you're using all of these aperture priority and really honing in on these things but i'm sure that you had that foundation before i mean i'm sure you understand what all of that was and could use it definitely i want to dive in more or less like photographing way more of the the florist work and and trying to give back to all these vendors that have collaborated rather than be that i'm not saying you but have that ego when you go in and it's like yeah, I'm producing this work because they booked me the dark night. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, man. Like in so many forums, you see conversations which kind of go in this path of, um, you know, this person's booked me, they want my style, blah, blah, blah. And I'm kind of like going, not really. Like a couple doesn't know or give a shit about the craft as much as we think they do. And it's easy for me to serve someone from a few different angles, you know, and if I go to a shoot where I'm, you know, maniacally intent on being spy on the wall, it's just not all about me. You can have both. It just means compartmentalising your mind and compartmentalising the time box you have available. So if you're, if you arrive at the venue, you know you've got 15 minutes where there's not much happening. That act of going, okay, I'm going to give myself two minutes to shoot the styling. I'm going to give myself eight minutes to find those where's Anderson moments and then I'm going to spread the rest in pure documentary. Like just almost treating yourself as a project manager in the moment rather than kind of staying there going, I'm just going to wait for something awesome to happen, which I should say is a really important part of this. But just segmenting the time you have available, I think is really valuable. And Ollie, obviously that comes back to a a financial, I, I think anyway, I mean, you're serving everyone that was a part of the day so much better right and when obviously i know when florists get this amount of content they're just ecstatic you know the first person they're thinking about is the person that served me the most because i wasn't there i wasn't able to take the photograph how ollie did and look what i have as my content and marketing and now i'm going to recommend so that's obviously coming back like a hamster wheel back to you yeah totally and you know not to not to kind of overstate the work we do but what a, what a gift you can give to someone just by spending a minute shooting this incredible work they've put so much effort and, and heart into. Don't charge them, just, just give it to them. It's like we're getting the chefs in the kitchens there, giving us these beautiful meals and some venues really look after you. I think you know, there's a bit of an obligation to just look at every part of it and all of the team involved and realise it's a team of collaborators. The first couple of years, I think I was really blind to that, not out of ego, just out of naivety, like just not realising that holy shit, there's all these moving parts. How can I plug in and be useful to them? I remember thinking about this last year and I mean, weddings are such a stressful time and we are caught for time so much and 
sometimes it is like, well, I got five minutes, but this is the first five minutes I've had for six hours. So like that cake can just wait, you know what I mean? And then I was thinking last year, I was like, as a business owner with the business hat on, there'd be such an advantage of bringing a second photographer only to photograph those things like the florals, the cake, the arbor, the venue and forgetting about people, like allow me to do the people side of things. Do you photograph with a second and or are you trying to just make time when you're doing this approach? I don't usually because I'm an internal control freak, which is to say <laughs> in my mind, I just feel like I have to get everything. So I get it anyway, or I try and get it anyway. So you're like, even if I have a second and I always get seconds, I you know, adore and trust. I just make sure I've got everything and I'm confident I've got everything. And a second shooter is a beautiful bonus if one uh, comes along. But what you said there is, possibly the most brilliant strategic move anyone can make. If you're shooting a wedding locally, hire a mate locally for two hours, get him to shoot all the style and that just takes put off the gas for you. Yeah, definitely as a business owner. I mean, I was speaking to a photographer yesterday and they were talking about like venues and how to get in with venues and, and doing this. And I'm like, have you ever served that venue? Have you ever given that venue anything of value? Oh, I've photographed there a few times, sent a gallery. I'm like, that happens numerous times every single week. Like, don't just go and drop a box of flowers off and expect, but like, you've got to, you know, we, we talk about serving and I remember we caught up last year and we were talking about serving and stuff on top of a volcano. But yeah, <laughs> I was like, you've got to give without the expectation of receiving, you know what I mean? Like, and if you could bring a second photographer along to every single wedding and collaborate and help people and just move chairs, it's like, you know, I don't know what the going rate for a second is. I don't do it either because I'm very similar to yourself. I I will get this, this and this and I'll work my ass off and sweat or whatever it may be and stink by the reception because I've been sweating all day. <laughs> but Ollie, I want to flip it around a little bit and I want to talk about just quickly on your film side of things because I know you have a vast amount of experience and knowledge with film photography for the listener out there. I want to talk about do you shoot film at weddings or is this mainly a personal approach? I've got two prompts to that. Like I've got an old film offering in my rebrand. It's so, so much more to go on that yet. So couples can book an old film thing with a bunch of caveats, but I'll have couples ask me about a digital image that was where it was shown film. And I think most folks don't really know the difference. It's just, you know, you can kind of get the aesthetics quite close depending on how you treat it black and white. So if I sense that a couple has leaning towards film and they notice the difference and they fall in love, I'll make all efforts to bring stuff along. And I'll, I'll, I'll always bring a Hasselblad or a little Rollerflex anyway because they're, they're just great, beautiful pieces of engineering that connect with the people there too. Like if you're walking around with a Rollerflex over your shoulder, guests kind of take note and fall in love with that and it creates a really beautiful connection, I think, as a, as a tool. So, you know, I'll usually try and fire off half a roll at the average wedding at a wedding I do where I notice that they fall in love with it. But yeah, I've only ever shot two weddings so far all on analog, one of them for a dear friend and another one for a couple that reached out and I hand developed the whole thing. It was the most incredibly fun process ever. It took days of work, uh, hand developed and scanned every frame, but yeah, really brilliant, but not something that's really commercially viable, unfortunately. 
Yeah, yeah, obviously I absolutely love film as well and um, know many other photographers in that same boat. And I remember uh, maybe last year or year before speaking to a photographer who, sh- who shot weddings entirely on film and the business was struggling and obviously it's all just from times that are moving, right? Like you mentioned, couples when they get engaged, generally they're not going to type in Google film photographer Melbourne right? It's just, Mm. it is what it is, right? Like the majority isn't going to win. The minority that does, there's such a small percentage if you're looking at making it a financial, I think, business and and that's that's your definition of success can be obviously quite difficult. But I do the same. I obviously take film cameras to win. It's just, I think it's, yeah, like you said, it's an amazing thing to be able to put down that digital camera that's blown through 5,000 photos a day and it's just sweaty and it's like, yeah, just don't want to hold that thing anymore, right? Your shoulders are wrecked and next minute you're looking through this waist level viewfinder and people are, <laughs> it's right. And it's not, I don't know, Ollie, for me, it's not about producing the images out of it. It's just like, it's my cooling off stage. It's my not walk around and, and everyone look at me and look what I know how to do. But it's just, it's so refreshing, isn't it? Completely. You get those grandpa that comes up to you and, and looks at that camera and thinks, and starts a conversation. Now, your next minute, you're sitting at the table having a conversation about old TLR cameras and they're explaining about what they've got in their cupboard. And it's like, what a great way to kind of get in with people and not just kind of take and take and take and sit there and just photograph on a 24 mil lens right in front of someone's head yeah. at a reception all night. Like that can be quite <laughs> like, you know, it can be demoralizing sometimes for people when you see the demeanor and how much you kind of take from them and, and to be able to slow down. I think it's absolutely incredible. Just to go into something you said there, you said, take, take, take. One of the biggest things I think out of that whole thread is this idea of theft mentality. And what if we just ask the question that is everything really important on a day? Do I need to dive in and do commando roles when someone picks up a pen to write on a piece of paper? Probably not. So those chances to connect yeah, and you can feel that chemistry, right? Like I think if you've got that empathy of others and feel like you are, you know, in the shoes of the groom or something and realize why that person is feeling vulnerable and, and uncomfortable. And it's like, oh, I always just say, like, just switch places just for like five seconds and you'll you'll probably understand it. When you can do that, you just take a step back what's the dip in all this and making someone laugh at a tree and all of this like stupid mundane crap. And it's like you said, like you don't need to do commando roles and and sometimes just produce work that's like going to be in a museum one day. It's like just a beautiful photo like grandma and grandpa had, like something that's just aesthetically pleasing and simple. And I remember actually, Ollie, I remember because I look at a lot of old photo books and um, I was watching a doco on Vivian Mayer about the the lost photographer or found photographer, I think it's called or something. And um, there was speculation of how she photographed on her Rolleiflex when she was walking around. And I think it was in the was it 50s. It was early era anyway. And one lady that was on the, the actual interview said, Vivian would just say, stop, just stop. And she'll photograph that. And that can be like an absurd way to like just make people stop in their tracks. But I find when I do street photography, just to go up to someone, you know, so close out of a a field where there's even a need for me to be photographing. I know me personally, I would not like that to be done. I've had that done to me before. I was 
I was going for a run the other day and there was a photography kind of like workshop happening and uh, I'm running and I'm like, you know, I'm sweating. I'm looking like, I'm looking like Shrek, you know, like just come out of the jungle. And I had 70 to 200 mil lenses just like barreling right into my face. And I'm like, hundred meters away. And, and you I know could, what that looks oh, like. I knew it. I could pick <laughs> it a mile away. And it was funny. I wanted to stop right then. I, I didn't stop because I knew if I'd stop, I'd end up walking the whole way. But I wanted to stop and just be like, maybe you should ask next time. And then I was like, but I do that. Hold on. Like I do that. And then I, I was thinking, how could I approach this? Would I explain to them, maybe you should be a little bit more discreet, 70 to 200. Like what's the reason for this photograph? And I kept running and I thought, yeah, the photos probably mean you nothing. These people are probably just learning. And then I sat in the car and I thought to myself, I do this every weekend. I take and take and take. And it's not that people go to weddings, hey, and they, they not everyone thinks they're going to be photographed because they're having an emotional moment. Like grandpa comes over and he gives a hug. He's not expecting a 16 mil lens to be in his face for the next five minutes, getting all these tears. And it's a fine line, don't you feel? Totally. We, we think we've got permission because we're at a wedding, but what we have is actually implied permission. And it's not a license to take and steal everything. It's always going to be a dance between how ballsy you are and how respectful you can be to the scene in front of you. I had a, a bride's a dear friend, grandfather, collapse at their wedding in the middle of the day. It was really, really hot. And there was kind of this subtext that this could be really, really serious and the ambulance was coming. And all of his family were gathering around him in a circle. Um, it was kind of unknown as to where it was going to go. And I made sure I asked her and she said, yes, shoot this, shoot the crap out of this. I'm so glad I did. And um, yeah, there's always going to be a, a line between exploitation. But my from my side, I, I push myself out of it. And from the point of view of I need to get this and work out the permissions and social graces afterwards. A classic shot of a... A groomsman in Bali who had some kind of um, Bali belly, whatever. I had something he shouldn't have. And um, on the wedding day, I saw him kind of getting hazy and he collapsed, eyes wide open onto the person next to him with his nose pressed in, his eyes stayed open. And I'm like, okay, I know these people. I know this community now. I need to shoot this. There's people all around him helping him. I've just got to get this as a record. And I've got this shot of him on the ground looking up and he's going, you bastard. <laughs> <laughs> he was fine, but I'm so glad I've got that sequence because the couple have used that as leverage against him for years. And yeah, it's that old thing of, you know, ask for um, forgiveness, not permission, but gracefully. Yeah, that fine line, right? It's, I think, um, I remember one of my experiences was very similar. A groomsman ended up fainting at the altar, and I stepped in. I had a 24 on, so I was up right up in that grill. You know, there's 100 people around. I knew he was safe. And there, there was not much I could do. And I was photographing people helping and it was uneasy. I, I began instantly getting a bit of anxiety as I was photographing because I didn't know if I was overstepping. But I knew that if I didn't photograph this, the story may not make sense, right? And whatever's the after effect from it. And I ended up getting spoken to and it wasn't from the bride and groom. And they ended up coming to me later as well. Oh, I actually explained that they were so grateful that I photographed that because who knows what's going to happen. And I just took a step back and went and apologized to uh, the, I think it was the mother-in-law or someone and just said, you know, like in the end of the day, you can do whatever you want 
with these images. I was just an observer of what happened like everyone else, but I was just taking a photo of it, which I was employed to do. But yeah, and then it's that thing. It's like, it's a hard one. Hey, like you can overstep so quickly. And I think it's from the time that you spend in that zone, you know, like do you move in, move out and be kind of become discreet or do you move in and follow and, and consume and get eyes on you and someone's tearing up and you're just following them around. And we, we know working with other creatives, this happens so often and it's, it becomes so uneasy for everyone in that position. Right. Yeah. And you know, the reality is there is no answer and that's the, beautiful thing like in some jobs you, you've got a risk of losing million millions of dollars or creating redundancies in our job we've got a risk of causing temporary discord within a sensitive scenario and that's a fairly low risk i think by by comparison so and you know at the end of the day there's always that thing of they don't have to be shown anywhere that's so true, right? Like if the photograph wasn't made, it can be forgotten. I mean, cliche terminology, but it is it is just so true, right? I mean, my mm. my little boy was born 10 weeks premature and, and something I wish, I wish I had done was have a photographer there because every day we didn't know what was happening. And even though that we've got through that stage, I just wish I had have invested in it. I'm sure we can all go along the same terms. We wish we had this. Has that changed how, you've, how you now photograph? your family from a point of view of if you didn't have that experience of not having that documented do you think maybe you would be less of a documentarian of your own world now yeah short answer ollie i wasn't even a photographer when that happened and i know it's this whole defining moment and stuff like that but for me like it just flipped me right i was so i believe i was superficial egotistic in the moment just like turning the hamster wheels in life. And as soon as that happened, it just stopped. Like I was, it was instant, right? My values had changed like instantly. And yeah, long story short, I always had a love of photography, got into it. And then um, that's in the back of my mind every single day. And it's not, I'm voicing it and saying, make photographs that, you know, because someone's going to pass away. That's reality. I'm not saying that, but that, yeah, for me, and that probably allows me to get in when, you know, someone does faint and just photograph and just think, you know what, like I just have this playback moment of living by a percentage rate and hearing doctors, you know, say things and looking back and going, wow, I mean, if, if stats had a held up, what would I have had a few iPhone photos? Like this is ridiculous. Yeah. So to, to answer that question, hundred percent. And I think it gives me that, that whole analogy of human beings are different and um yeah if i got told to do a dip and and laugh at a tree or put my forehead on someone else's forehead for 25 minutes while the photographer was trying to work stuff out i just i would look at that photo and just think where's that pointing so when i photograph i definitely think about the atmosphere and the vibe and then trying to allow people to feel comfortable because when i look at my photos of my boy that I make now, I'm, I don't care about the artistic approach. It's like, as soon as I see him smiling and laughing and just full of life, I'm like, that thing needs to be printed. Oh, I was in the backyard. Like that's going on my wall, 16 by 18. That, like, that's incredible. Yeah, long answer to, to that, but definitely in my mind at all times, even as I approach business, I mean, yeah, it was the biggest kick in my ass in my, ever in my life, having that been a first time parent and just, yeah, many people go through struggles and that was ours and it is still today him having cerebral palsy and not being able to walk or talk. Even 
flipping it from photography when I train and run and, and do all this kind of fitness stuff. All I want to do is stop, but all I just keep saying in my mind is, wow, he can't walk. So what have I got to worry about? Like, why am I like saying, oh my gosh, this is so hard. And that's me though, right? Like, I'm not saying that we all need to live like that, but I think if we can just stop, like you said, COVID-19 earlier in this episode, it's such an amazing thing to just stop and just reflect and just be quiet. Like, just just shut up for a second and get off social media and just, yeah, just do nothing and listen to your intuition and what makes you you because you is unique. No one's going to be Ollie. No one's going to be me. No one's going to be them. And that's why I love that answer that you gave Ollie at the start, mate, is when you said you had that foundation because when I started, I, I had none of that artistic foundation. I was looking and looking and trying and, and now looking back a couple of years, I think you, you are you straight away and you just develop more of you. Don't you believe? Like you were Ollie straight away. It's not that I can do all these courses and become Ollie. I'm just going to define myself a little bit more and what makes me tick, what images I'm attracted to. Yeah, there's, there's always threats. And that's why the whole narrative around you know, just being yourself is, is really tough because there's 10 of us inside at any one time. One minute I'm putting on corpse bait and playing a screeching black little band. The other day I'm playing a pop band or photographing love. Or There's so many different versions of us inside that could be served fully and wholly without being muddled into one. And I think that's what can be a confusing thing if, if we are just jumping into an arts kind of industry and... There's so much stuff going on around us, so much different stuff. It's like, holy shit, which ones are mine? Which ones align to that little dark spot in me or that light spot? Or Yeah, it's, it's really tough. Yeah, like you said, you, you draw on your past experiences. So you said initially in this, yeah, I'm completely. pretty sure. And it, it is, isn't it so true, right? Like you, you have your eye and you know, you may be attracted to this type of thing and it may present itself and you may be there or you may be aware of what's happening during a wedding day and emotional images may be coming to you. And because of your past experience, you're drawn to that. You're abs- but, or you may have that artistic approach where you're looking at leading lines and all of this, and you're constantly thinking about that from that establishment. Ollie, what I was going to ask as well, just staying on on cameras and stuff, I'm, like film for me was the reason why you stood out when I was looking into film. I remember seeing your work and I definitely touched base, I think going back two, three years now. Large format. Now, have you photographed on it? Do you photograph on it? And tell me about it because this is my next uh, little venture. <sighs> Man, that's the holy grail. And you need a bit of uh, Morgana McGee in your life, dear friend in Melbourne who's doing beautiful, soft, silent, hidden work, 8 by 10 It's such a brilliant medium. And one of my favourite um, large white photographers, a guy called Greg Miller, has a series called Primo Amore on 8 by 10 colour. And you look at these images and you're like, okay, everything I think I know about colour has gone out the window. Because he is oil scanning these on a flatbed scanner and they're it's drop dead gorgeous. I shoot four by five. I've got a couple of I've got a hundred year old wooden bellows camera and I did a series in the NT with that a few years ago and you know, a bunch of us jumped in a a van for eight or nine days and we just drove, pointed the car in a direction, drove, all took one camera each, and I chose to take a eight by ten. Sorry, a 4x5 
wooden German camera. And another good friend, James Bennett, only took his 8x10 camera. So this guy was lugging around this giant horse of a thing on his shoulder around the freaking desert. And it, it teaches you a lot about opportunities you can and can't take. And I would recommend to everybody, go on a trip that's kind of important or has something at stake and just take the most obnoxiously difficult, annoying, opportunity-thieving camera you can because it'll teach you a lot about yourself and photography, I think. And an eight by ten definitely would be that, especially if you're walking, right? I mean, that thing is a beast. It's like taking a TV around with you. The amount of weight behind the image that you're making is extraordinary. It's, it's brilliant. Yesterday, I was watching a uh, a doc on Alex Soth, um, Magnum photographer, and he was shooting eight by ten in it. The video that I was watching was, you know, 25, 30 minutes long. He took one frame and it was all all behind the scenes of the video of uh, rolling consecutive playing and him setting up the camera, talking, instructing, 30 minutes, one photo. And I thought that was just incredible. His mind and watching how his mind worked. And I remember I've seen you work as well. And you, I think you were shooting on your blad or something like that in New Zealand. And it just refreshed my memory of how you shot Fran and that diner, the 70s kind of diner that mm. saved all of us from being blown up on a volcano <laughs> or blown off on a volcano. Uh, what a move. Yeah. So an amazing thing. You said uh, you would definitely suggest getting in a car, getting some other creatives and taking maybe just a film camera if you haven't shot film before and just failing maybe. Who knows? 8 by 10 go high one or something. 100%. Put struggle in your workflow. We have all of these things in our workflow, all our bits and bobs. Put the idea of struggle in that workflow. Go, how do I make something hard? Because it actually changes how you think about solving a problem. So four by five for me is the ideal format because it's totally inexpensive to shoot. If you're scanning the negative yourself, it costs you nothing. Don't go to a lab, it'll cost you 20 bucks a frame. Just borrow a friend's flatbed. Each frame can cost you about a buck or a buck fifty, all things considered. And you can pick up like a speed graphlex for 150 bucks. They're really simply engineered cameras and the amount of detail and depth you can get out of those negatives is off the charts. So yeah, four by five for me is a real winner. Just get an old press camera. Yeah. So this is my new journey looking into it. And it's, uh, I love it because like, I mean, you think you're this, this photographer that's full time and that's it. And then there's this whole path that you just have no idea about looking at images on ground glasses upside mm. down under a tent. It's like, oh, man. but for me, I'm just, I have never done it and I'm really, really excited to do it. And I'm really excited to like learn off people like yourself and people that have been there and done it and watch these behind the scenes and not understand what the heck does this mean? What is this principle thingy that I can adjust the front and the rear element? And oh my gosh, like, it's just bringing me back to starting with digital, but digital is so easy. Like aperture priority and you're on, right? Like concept of thinking is very small. Now, three things photographers can do now to level up their business or their creative art. What are your three? I would say number one, separate our ego from the platforms we're using and see them as flash in the pan, fluid utilitarian. Stop looking at our Instagram feed as our portfolio because it's not. Our, our website is our portfolio. Even better, a printed book is our portfolio. A medium like Instagram is fluid, short-lived. So exploit that and just strategize. It's break up all of the things you want to serve, all of the things that should serve your business, 
the things that are going to serve you in the short term, the long term, and really strategize that and then map all of the content that you have at your disposal just to fit into each one of those things you've identified. What about any ideas coming from your incredible, which I was going to talk about, but um, where are your time? Like Insta stories, the the Bible for photographers that I'm just fucking waiting for to be a news agent near me because (laughs) literally in that corner, it'll be stocked. And every morning I'm just like, hey, here's a golden nugget. Read this. So number one, we've got remove yourself pretty much. Remove your ego from the work that you're showing. 100% and realize that it's a, you know, it's a utilitarian thing. It's a service industry. We'll also, I think, have the benefit of kind of freeing us up for our art to live as a separate thing. And in that way, both get amplified. It's only a really good thing, I think. Secondly, I would say diversify the inputs and, and take agency over the inputs of, of where and how we're consuming stuff. I kind of like to say this. It sounds like such a, a trivial hipster thing, but, you know, I just subscribed to a, a hand-delivered newspaper down here once a week because I realised I've been consuming information about what's going on from a set of digital sources that chop and change. And I'm like, hang on, I need to take agency of this thing I've got in my hand and I'm just going to pick one. For me, maybe the title of the second point is see what you can make lean in a time when everything's kind of trying to get its tentacles into your attention. And for me, I'm now got one news input and that's all I want, all I need. And I'm essentially putting in charge of the information I'm receiving to a group of curators that are in that newspaper and accepting that I might also be missing out on stuff and there might be bias in that. And that's fine. And that can be applied to anywhere. The art you're consuming. Getting off Instagram is possibly the worst thing in the world because there is no curatorship on that. Unless you follow a narrow set of accounts, which I've done on my personal Instagram, I, when I'm adding someone, I look at a follow as a vote. I'm allowing that person into my living room. I'm allowing them to rock up on my doorstep every day. The wedding one's different because it's a, an ecosystem of sharing and community. But for my Ollie one, I'm like, when I have this account open in my hand, it's a privilege to let someone into my room and occupy that mental space. And that should be given away too generously um, context. So wrapping around that strategy of, of who I follow and it has to be something in line with projects I'm doing or curators I've, I've identified that I want to consume that information. So I don't follow any wedding stuff, any sort of film or photography stuff that I used to follow or, or friends because I choose to look at their accounts what I want to. And for me, that's a far more beautiful thing than just, just following them because. So every time I visit a friend, it's with intent on, on that device now. It's, it's intentful. It's because I want to go there. I've thought of them and I want to go there. And I haven't just um, allowed content that an algorithm has said can come into my living room. So to kind of condense that down and say, identify who your curators are. Who is your curator of news? Who is your curator of music? Who is your curator of the industry that you're in and how much control have you got over them? And if you've got no control and you've given it to the algorithm, uh, I think that's something powerful and just identifying that and go, okay, how would it change my work if I change my curators? You said at the, the start of this about the, the friend knocking on your door and just how you put that then, Ollie, when you jump on Instagram, could you give in someone a follow? 
it doesn't mean that you really want to see them at your door and without that algorithm and without you curating that, I mean, they're, they're constantly showing up that I just, when you're explaining that, I'm just picturing how many knocks on the door once I'm on Instagram and it's like this friend, that friend, this vendor, that vendor, and this artist. And I'm like, I actually didn't want to see any of that right now. Right. Yep. But right now being the operative word. Yeah. When I wanted to see you, exactly. I, would, I would go to Ollie and I would have a look at his feed or see what he's up to or digest his creative content and then I jump back off and that's my newspaper. It's really interesting. I never heard it put, I, I absolutely love that. And I know this whole like follow and, and, and stuff like that. I mean, it's, it's what everyone thinks that's so valuable, but you know, unfollowing a lot of people, you may lose some followers, but what's a number, right? Like that, that number doesn't generate anything. Like you're stuck to it with an ego, right? And too many of us are. Totally. I've got to clarify that like I, you know, for my wedding one, I still follow my entire extended community. I follow couples because like, I know that when I open that account, I am opening myself to receiving that. So I want to see it. And it's also that thing that, you know, it is a two-way street. But for me, my Ollie account, that's something I've taken for myself on a platform that doesn't want us to take anything for ourselves. And it's this tiny, maybe insignificant project, but I think it can change the type of work we do just by changing our view of the ecosystem like i thought about mail order music the other day ollie that's going to stay with me for a while mate thinking about people knocking on my door now every time i see that instagram and i think about it every time that's incredible i I love that oh man it's it's part of the reason i got off off facebook because i'm like holy crap every day there's probably about 30 30 or so um different group threads and stuff and i'm like man if i just jump out of this how would it change how would it change things? And the answer was to change absolutely nothing. So have you removed your business from Instagram or just your, yourself personally? No. And full disclosure, I have business on there and I have a go- you have to have an account to run a business page. So I've yep. got a ghost account on there. The Dark Knight. The Dark Knight. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I did miss um, one photography community group, a, a local one with friends that I was in. And I had myself re-added into that group and that's the only thing... So that account has no friends, no content, no nothing. And I'm just in one group so I can communicate with a group of friends. But um, I don't use it for anything else. I've had to go, okay, that, that account is just for that. It's literally to run my pages. And it's because if I, if I start using it for other means, maybe the Gen Z are cut out for it, but my brain, I realized, was suffering adversely from having so many inputs where I could communicate on. And I don't think it's healthy. I think it's incredibly unhealthy and now i recall reading somewhere ollie on an on another podcast or interview you've done you said your biggest thing that you struggle with when you did this i forget the reference was it time management and i mean we sit on social media and it's just like where did time go and i know myself dude i'm a sack of shit if i'm if i'm on that infinite scroll i get upset with myself thinking i've just wasted like what have i done like the lot land you know i get a screen time reminder you've been on your phone for one hour 10 minutes and i'm like are you kidding how, how? and it's like what did i get like if i sat down and actually read a book for an hour and 10 minutes like wow that would increase so much of my life or just sit you know meditate for one hour and 10 minutes good luck like that is very difficult but it's the same time and what would i get more from it so man i'm absolutely loving this episode i there's just so much so much to decipher ollie and it it's so refreshing mate to see 
you sharing like your vulnerability, how your business was and how it moved from, from like failing and hitting rock bottom. And, and now where you are, I can just hear it in your voice, mate, how like you have so much still to serve and now you've got the business hat on and you've still got these creative outlets to be that Ollie, that the, the wandering kid, the dark night and uh, the one that inspires me to create and the one that makes me think objectively of work that I'm creating as well. And especially in personal projects, shooting film, shooting eight by 10, four by five, like it's an amazing thing to see Ollie, I think. And uh, yeah, man, I just so appreciative to have you on here. You've been a huge inspiration in my creative field and, and will continue to be. So I'm really grateful, man, honestly, from the bottom of my heart. Dude, it's an honor of the highest order, man. You're a, you're a weapon. And man, I'm, I'm excited to see the, the terrifyingly awesome stuff you're going to do on large format. <laughs> like, yeah, I'll, I'll probably put my back out and then that's when I'll get that second shooter. I think there's a really benefit of a second shooter on an 8x10, right? The bag carrier. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're so glad you have taken the time to tune in. If you found this episode useful, why not share it with a friend? and be the light someone may need. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. This would mean so much to us. Ryan would love to connect with you beyond this episode. The links to everything and anything that was spoken about are in the show notes at www.escapingtheordinarypodcast.com. Talk to you next week.